Okay, please stand and turn with me in your Bibles to Luke chapter 1. We'll read verses 26 to 38. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin, betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, How will this be, since I am a virgin? And the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son, and this is the sixth month with her who was called barren, for nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord, let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. Amen. Now let's turn back to Judges chapter 13. So we begin a new historical cycle here. Several chapters regarding a life and judgeship and death of mighty Samson. Judges 13. And the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. So the Lord gave them into the hand of the Philistines for 40 years. There was a certain man of Zorah of the tribe of the Danites, whose name was Manoah, and his wife was barren and had no children. And the angel of the Lord appeared to the woman and said to her, Behold, you are barren and have not born children, but you shall conceive and bear a son. Therefore, be careful and drink no wine or strong drink and eat nothing unclean. For behold, you shall conceive and bear a son. No razor shall come upon his head, for the child shall be a Nazarite to God from the womb, and he shall begin to save Israel from the hand of the Philistines. Then the woman came and told her husband, A man of God came to me, and his appearance was like the appearance of the angel of God. Very awesome. I did not ask him where he was from, and he did not tell me his name. But he said to me, Behold, you shall conceive and bear a son. So then drink no wine or strong drink, and eat nothing unclean, for the child shall be a Nazarite to God from the womb to the day of his death. Then Manoah prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, please let the man of God whom you sent come again to us and teach us what we are to do with the child who will be born. And God listened to the voice of Manoah, and the angel of God came again to the woman as she sat in the field. But Manoah, her husband, was not with her. 
So the woman ran quickly and told her husband, Behold, the man who came to me the other day has appeared to me. And Manoah arose and went after his wife and came to the man and said to him, Are you the man who spoke to this woman? And he said, I am. And Manoah said, Now when your words come true, what is to be the child's manner of life and what is his mission? And the angel of the Lord said to Manoah, Of all that I said to the woman, let her be careful. She may not eat of anything that comes from the vine, neither let her drink wine or strong drink or eat any unclean thing. All that I commanded her, let her observe. Manoah said to the angel of the Lord, Please let us detain you and prepare a young goat for you. And the angel of the Lord said to Manoah, If you detain me, I will not eat of your food. But if you prepare a burnt offering, then offer it to the Lord. For Manoah did not know that he was the angel of the Lord. And Manoah said to the angel of the Lord, What is your name, so that when your words come true, we may honor you? And the angel of the Lord said to him, Why do you ask my name, seeing it is wonderful? So Manoah took the young goat with the grain offering and offered it on the rock to the Lord, to the one who works wonders. And Manoah and his wife were watching. And when the flame went up toward heaven from the altar, the angel of the Lord went up in the flame of the altar. Now Manoah and his wife were watching, and they fell on their faces to the ground. The angel of the Lord appeared no more to Manoah and his, to his wife. Then Manoah knew that he was the angel of the Lord, and Manoah said to his wife, We shall surely die, for we have seen God. But his wife said to him, If the Lord had meant to kill us, he would not have accepted a burnt offering and a grain offering at our hands, or shown us all these things, or now announced to us such things as these. And the woman bore a son and called his name Samson. And the young man grew, and the Lord blessed him. And the Spirit of the Lord began to stir him in Mahanadan between Zorah and Eshtael. Amen. You may be seated. No matter how many times you save the world, it always manages to get back in jeopardy again. I think maybe about half of you might understand that reference. This is... uh, Mr. Incredible. Sometimes I feel like the maid, he says. I I just cleaned up this mess five minutes ago. Can't the world just stay saved just for a minute? And that's not really a bad description of the awful cycle of sin and judgment and salvation and sin again that we've been seeing over and over so far throughout this book. And hopefully, if we're reading the book of Judges correctly, I think we should start to get that sense of frustration and longing. Can't Israel just stay saved? Just for a minute. The answer, in the history of Samson, uh, no less than any of the others, resoundingly, deafeningly, the answer is no. Israel cannot keep themselves saved. They 
just keep going back to their old sins again? And the answer to that question for you and me is actually the same. It is also a resounding, deafening, no, we can't stay saved, not even for a minute, as long as that salvation depends on us. As long as that salvation depends on our effort, on our worthiness, on our goodness, on our strength. Or as long as it depends on even very mighty people like Mr. Incredible or even mighty Samson. No matter how many times we might be dragged out of danger and judgment, we would always manage to get ourselves back in jeopardy again. Because that is just the nature of our sinful wills, the waywardness of our desires. You see, what the history of Samson shows us is that there is hope for the people of God nevertheless. And why is that? It is because our salvation does not depend upon ourselves. It does not depend upon the strength of men, even the strongest of men. And it does not depend on our ability to follow through or to keep the rules or to fight the battles and to carry the day. Salvation belongs to the Lord, and it depends on his almighty power and not on the strength of men and women and boys and girls, to save themselves or keep themselves saved, even for a minute. Salvation comes and salvation stays because of what God does, because God acts supernaturally from heaven to raise up and to provide for his people the man his people need, the right man on our side, the man of God's own choosing, who has done God's work of salvation for us that we could not do for ourselves and who is going to keep us safe all the way to the end as he completes the good work he's begun in a way that no other Savior in the history of God's people ever has or could. So let's get into the life of Samson, uh, starting then with chapter 13 tonight. And we're going to use the following three headings. First, the promise of a Savior verses 1 through 7. Second will be the promise confirmed, verses 8 to 20. And third, the promise fulfilled, verses 21 to 25. So the promise of a Savior, the promise confirmed, and the promise fulfilled. Okay. So, uh, first the promise of a, of a Savior. Um, right on the surface... You saw, read the New Testament reading from Luke chapter 1, right? Um, you, you simply can't miss reading from a New Testament perspective the very obvious parallels between the supernatural birth of Samson and the virgin birth of Jesus. The, the annunciation to Mary that we read about and, and this, you could almost call it an annunciation to the wife of Manoah. But before we go there in the New Testament, I want to make sure that we understand the significance of this Annunciation in light of its Old Testament context. When you read in verse 2 that the wife of Manoah was barren, what should that immediately make you think of? How many barren women have you read about in the Bible? Uh, if you have read uh, the book of Genesis, then you know at least three 
at least three really important women in the history of God's people who struggled mightily with this devastating disappointment of not being able to have children. And in each case, what did the Lord do? He supernaturally gave them the ability to have children, very significant children, in fact, in the covenantal history of, wisdom, of, of Israel. And the women that I'm thinking of, of course, are Sarah, Rebecca, and Rachel. Those, and those very significant children, of course, were Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph. Joseph, significantly, who ended up becoming the savior for his entire family um, as he ruled in Egypt under Pharaoh. So there's this pattern that's already set in Israel's history, right? A pattern to the way that God has chosen in the past to work um, to show uh, symbolically through these histories that the survival of the nation of Israel from generation to generation is going to depend completely on the sovereign initiative and supernatural power of the Almighty God. And to to underline that left to their own strength, left to their own resources, Israel would simply wither and disappear from off the face of the earth. But if they're going to fulfill that original commission to Adam from the beginning of Genesis to be fruitful and multiply and ultimately to fill the earth, well, that is going to require God to act in a supernatural way to preserve and to propagate the covenant people and to provide for them the leaders and even the saviors that they will need because of their sin to to make it as a people in spite of particularly their enemies, their hostile uh, Canaanite environment. Okay, so Sarah, Rebecca, and Rachel are very much in the background of the story in the past. But there's actually one more historical parallel um, that is even more closely related to the birth of Samson than those from back in Genesis, although it might not come to mind as quickly for us. Um, That is the history of the birth of Samuel his mother, Hannah, another barren woman whose womb God opens for her to have this son. And in fact, it is quite likely that Samson and Samuel lived at about the same time in the history of Israel. Think about who is the most significant enemy of the Israelites at the beginning of 1 Samuel. It's the Philistines. It's the Philistines who kill the sons of Eli in battle, who capture the Ark of the Covenant. It's Saul who spends much of his kingship fighting against the Philistines. And and then it's David who ends up defeating the Philistines finally, uh, once and for all, and delivering Israel from this Philistine threat. It's very likely the same Philistine oppression. And notice in verse 5 where the angel of the Lord says that the son that's to be born shall begin to save Israel from the hand of the Philistines. That word begin is important. uh, Samson is going to begin what David is going to finish. Understand. And an important part of bridging that gap between Samson and David is going to be the prophetic ministry of Samuel. Now, we talked a lot in the series on Jephthah about that whole idea of uh, Mary Webb of same but different, right? Same but different. Well, that's a, quite an interesting way to look at Samson and Samuel. Both men born by the supernatural intervention of God to mothers who previously were barren, right? Both men uh, formally set apart to God from childhood. One as a Nazarite, the other as tabernacle assistant. 
Um, and yet, uh, how different these two men are and how differently their lives go. Um, Samuel living a life of faithfulness, of course, and godly integrity as a prophet. Uh, Samson, on the other end, sort of flouting his holy status as a Nazarite, making a total mess of his very high calling by his sinful and selfish choices. I realize at this moment uh, that Samuel Samson comparison came from one of the commentators. I can't remember which one. If you want to know, you can ask me later. I'll look it up for you. Um, nevertheless, despite all of these differences between Samson and Samuel, both men, God ends up using very mightily in his plan uh, to save Israel from the Philistines. And that's really what we want to see in the history of Sam- Samson, beginning with his birth, that it's the Lord. It's the Lord whose plan is being carried out here in spite of the weaknesses and failures of his people, as we see in verse 1, we'll talk about in a minute, and in spite of the weaknesses and failures of their leaders, the judge, even the very judges that God raises up, the judges in general and Samson in particular. Now, I want us to notice the way that the historian highlights here that sovereign grace and initiative of God In this situation, unexpected, uninvited, and undeserved. And you begin to see that right off the bat in verse 1. And the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. So the Lord gave them into the hand of the Philistines for 40 years. And more than one writer notes that unlike other places in Judges, um, there's no reference here to the people crying out to God in response to this Philistine oppression. There's no indication of them uh, repenting or, or even expressing any kind of sorrow or discomfort about their situation. Now, it's not to say it was comfortable to be under Philistine oppression, but it's significant that that is not stated. It's not said that the people cry out to God. The very next thing we hear is not something the Israelites do, it's something that God does that the angel of the Lord appears to a barren woman. What is going to bring Israel out from under this awful burden of the foreign domination? Well, the answer is not going to be found within Israel. It's not going to be found in their natural resources and ability. It is going to have to come to them from outside. It's not just this woman who's barren, right? It's really the whole nation, you could say, that has reached what surely must have felt like sort of a national dead end together. But what happens here is that into that hopeless feeling situation intrudes the sovereign grace of God with a supernatural promise to do something entirely unexpected, entirely unlooked for, something this woman did not ask the Lord for. The angel of the Lord appeared to the woman and said to her, uh, essentially, yes, you are barren, but guess what? You are going to bear a son, and that son is going to be holy. He's going to be set apart to God from his infancy. In fact, uh, he's, it's, it's, that holiness is going to so pervade his life that even you as his mother need to follow the Nazarite rules while you're pregnant with him as a sign of just how special this boy is going to be. This boy the Lord is going to use to begin to save Israel from the hand of the Philistines. Uh, we read earlier um, the Annunciation to Mary. Um, I want to also invite you to remember the related passage in Matthew where the angel announces Jesus' birth to Joseph and he says, you shall call his name Jesus. Why? Because he, shall sa- he will save his people from their sins. He will save his people from their sins. This is the pattern 
of salvation history. God's people sin, but God sends a Savior. It happens over and over in the Bible. Um, And writ large, that's not a bad summary of the whole Bible. God's people sin, but God sends a Savior. Once again, God is taking the initiative here. There's nothing Israel's done to deserve it. Israel hasn't asked for it. Israel is, as it, was, as it were, dead in their trespasses and sins at this point. They're lifeless, lifeless as the barren womb of Manoah's wife. But the Lord is about to bring life where there was no life back to Israel. And so um, we are going to talk a lot about the failures of Samson later on in his adult life. There are going to be many, no doubt about it. But even as we anticipate those failures, let's not lose sight of this beginning. In fact, Samson's failures are really, they're just going to go to underline the same exact point that we're making now at his birth. That is, Israel's inability to save themselves and therefore their desperate need for God to act from beyond and outside and above them to rescue them from the mess they made for themselves. Samson's life is going to illustrate that just as much as his birth, only in a different way. See, this is what the Lord is doing by bringing Samson into the world in the first place. And it's what he's going to continue to do in Samson's life and down through the further history of his people. And it's exactly what he's done for us in the work of Christ. Okay, let's go on now to the second section where Manoah prays for the angel of the Lord to return. This is the promise confirmed. So um, Manoah sometimes gets a little bit of a bad rap from people um, expositing this section. You know, people ask, why does Manoah have to ask the Lord to repeat himself here? Why can't he just take his wife's word for it in the first place? Um, why can't Manoah recognize the Lord when he comes, isn't that a bad sign that Manoah doesn't know the Lord when he sees him or when he hears his voice? People will, people will talk about Manoah seeking to uh, maybe manipulate the angel of the Lord uh, by finding out, trying to find out his name so that he can use it in a sort of pagan kind of magical way to take advantage of his power. And I'll admit, there's no doubt that, um, or there's, there's, it's, it's, it stands to reason that Manoah um, may be... Um, Ignorant um, and um, misguided, wrong about the way he tries to relate to God, the way he approaches the Lord. But of course, what else would we expect from a common man and woman living in the midst of Israel under Philistine oppression when for generations Israel has not been following the Lord? No doubt, Israel is permeated with pagan idolatry. They've blended in, remember, heard about the canonization of Israel. Um, and this, uh, this is exactly what you would expect from a couple living in uh, uh, among Israel at this time in their history. Tragic, though that is, it should not come as a surprise. But I think that what should stand out to us in this middle section is not really some wickedness or faithlessness or even Manoah's ignorance, although we can take those things into account, But what is the historian really wanting to emphasize for us here? It's given those realities that characterize Israel as a whole, and sure, Manoah no less than his contemporaries. It seems that the historian is wanting to emphasize here 
really the patience and the gentleness and the compassion of God as he slowly, carefully teaches Manoah and his wife, as he brings them out of where they have been to a new place in their understanding of who God is and what he's like, moving them gradually and persistently away from that mixed-up Canaanitish pagan way of relating to God and bringing them to a clearer conception of God's glory and authority and mercy. To bring them to know once again the one true covenant God of Israel, the Lord. Someone they would never know unless he made himself known to them. And that's what the Lord is doing in his mercy for Manoah and his wife in this passage. I love verse 8 where Manoah says, O Lord, please let the man of God whom you sent come again to us and teach us what we are to do with the child who will be born. I'm going to go on a little bit of a tangent here because I don't think this is the main point of the passage, but I do think it's a fair kind of secondary application. I just want to say that as a parent, I resonate very deeply with what Manoah prays here. Samson uh, was going to be a special child, with a special identity, a special mission, unique to this time and place. And so I don't want to uh, overextend this and, and imply that um, this prayer applies to all of our children in exactly the same sense. But let's not forget that our children, the covenant children in the church, are, as children of the covenant, set apart to God. Paul goes so far in 1 Corinthians as to describe our covenant children as holy and that sense of set apart to God. And I think every Christian's heart cry as we seek to raise our children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord should be, Oh Lord, please teach us. Please teach us what we are to do with the children that you've given to us. People often joke that uh, babies don't come with an instruction manual. It's true. And as Christian parents, we often feel our helplessness and our ignorance and our need for wisdom and skill we feel keenly the lack of. And in that sense, I think it is wise for us then to pray with Manoah, Lord, teach us. And of course, the Lord has taught us, hasn't he? He's taught us in his word. And it's significant that in response to this prayer, in Manoah's case, in these particular circumstances, the Lord basically, in response, he just repeats exactly what he said to Manoah's wife. As the hymn says, what more can he say than to you he has said? Uh, But so often that is precisely what we need, isn't it? As Christian parents, and just in the Christian life more generally, it is to be pointed back again and again to the word that we've already heard. It's to have it repeated to us again. And should we have gotten it the first time? Sure, yes, we should have. Yes, we are weak. Yes, we are ignorant. Yes, we are sinful and dull and hard-hearted. And are we responsible to take God at his word the first time, like children who need to learn first-time obedience? Are we responsible to learn that? Yes. And yet, like those children who have to be taught again and again and trained to that point of obeying on the first time. You see, the Lord knows our weakness, too, and he remembers that we are but dust, and he is so gentle, and he's so patient and kind to tell us again, to stoop down and to repeat himself as many times as it takes for us to learn the lessons that he's teaching us in his word. 
we might be inclined here to fault Manoah for his ignorance when he offers to serve the angel of the Lord some food. Um, I'm not sure we need to be too hard on him on that point. After all, in Genesis, you find Abraham, for example, preparing food for the angel of the Lord who visits him under somewhat similar circumstances. Um, Again, yes, Manoah is ignorant. He doesn't recognize the Lord. He doesn't have a a proper concept of who God really, the true God really is. Um, He doesn't understand who this visitor is. But if you think about it, isn't that the point of this visit? Isn't that what the Lord has come to remedy? Isn't that a big part of the reason this messenger has come? It's to teach Manoah and his wife. Um, Remember, again, that Israel's been under the Philistine domination for 40 years. We talked about that earlier, so I won't belabor the point. Just Manoah and his wife are living in a time where God's people desperately need reformation and revival, as God's people need really in every generation, especially where the truth about God has gone by the wayside among his people. And um, this is the reason the Lord has come. And it's not just to tell them the truth about himself uh, verbally, it's to show them that truth, to, to show them who he really is, to reveal to them the reality of what Israel's one true covenant God is really like. And so, yes, the angel of the Lord corrects Manoah, but he doesn't do it harshly. He, he leads him gently along to a clearer understanding of how the true God is different from the Canaanite gods um, that have kind of shaped Man- the way Manoah thinks about theology and worship. If you detain me, verse 16, I will not eat your food. He's teaching Manoah that the Lord is not served with human hands. Remember, like Paul at Athens, we talked about adult Sunday school this morning, right? That he doesn't depend on us to feed him, as maybe some of the Canaanite gods, uh, people would have thought of their Canaanite gods. But if you prepare a burnt offering, then offer it to the Lord. What he's doing is saying, offer an offering to this God that I'm going to tell you. And you notice it's the Lord in all the uh, capital letters there, the the small capital letters there. He's giving him the covenant name of God, Yahweh. Tell him, if you're going to offer a burnt offering, here's the God you should offer it to. And then what's the next step? It's when Manoah sets that offering out to the Lord, then the angel of the Lord shows, and that's me. That's who I am. Remember, this is not merely an angel, a created angel. This is an appearance of the Lord himself in a visible form. Uh, This is how we are to understand the angel of the Lord, uh, most places where that phrase appears in the Old Testament. Um, And so Manoah and his wife uh, realize as he he, uh, disappears in the flame on the altar, they realize who this is now. They have now learned, they have been shown, and they... They see now this is the Lord himself who's just appeared to us. And that's why um, when Manoah asked his name, that's why he replied, why do you ask my name, seeing it is wonderful? That, that uh, by the way, I think is not so much a rebuke of Manoah. You know, Come on, man, you should know my name without having to ask kind of thing. No, I, I think it's another way of carefully adjusting Manoah's view of God. Um, and yet another manner to, again, moving him away from those pagan deities who are just kind of bigger, blown-up versions of ourselves, who are really part of the universe. And he's teaching him, Manoah, if 
you want to know what the true God of Israel is like, if you want to know what I am like, the true God of Israel is a wondrous God. That is a, a God who transcends our comprehension, a God that we cannot fit inside the confines of our creaturely minds and imaginations. Ralph Davis turns at this point to Psalm 139 where David has just finished describing the omnipresence of God. Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? And he says, this knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain to it. See, the Lord is teaching Manoah that very basic principle of the transcendence of God. What we sometimes call the, the creator-creature distinction, that God is God and we are not, that God is, is beyond us, that he is infinite and we are finite, that he is limitless, we are limited, that his ways are higher than our ways, that his thoughts are higher than our thoughts, or to put it in a much simpler, more familiar way, that little ones to him belong, and they are weak, but he is strong. And we know and his wife were watching and and they fell on their faces to the ground. And isn't that interesting? Remember back to the sermon this morning. The exact same reaction to the glory of God that we saw from Paul on the Damascus Road. In the parallel, in the prophetic call of Ezekiel before him, in Ezekiel chapter 2. Remember that? This is the natural, instinctive reaction of creatures of God confronted with the transcendent majesty and glory, glory and holiness of God in his presence. So much so... Then Manoah thinks he's going to die. Like Isaiah, woe is me, for I am undone. But of course, his wife knows better. and She is reassured by remembering why God came and what he said to them while he was there. The promise he's just given them. If the Lord meant to kill us, I don't, I don't think, sweetheart, he would have accepted the offering that we gave him. And I don't think he would have told us everything he just did and given us all these promises. I think the fact that we're still here means that the Lord has a purpose for us and that he's going to keep that promise he made about me having a son, that we're going to see his plan come all the way to fulfillment. And that is exactly what happens in verse 24. The barren woman does indeed have a son, just like Sarah did, just like Rebecca did, just like Rachel did, just like Hannah's going to, just like God promised. And just like Elizabeth, the mother of John the Baptist, did, just like Mary, the mother of Jesus. Jesus, who was born like Samson, by the supernatural power, the gracious initiative of God to be the Savior for sinners who didn't deserve it, who didn't ask for it, who were not looking for that salvation, and yet God sent him. Like Samson, Jesus grew, remember, in wisdom and stature and favor with God and man, and the Lord blessed him. Like Samson... Um, the Holy Spirit stirred also in Christ. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because he's anointed me. Uh, Luke chapter 4 and so on. Um, now you might think, and, and there the similarities pretty much end. Um, not completely. Um, as we, The bi biographies of Samson and Jesus do diverge pretty dramatically at that point. And again, we'll talk about those things. Samson has uh, probably the most promising origin story of any of the judges. Uh, but then his life turns out to be probably the most disappointing um, by comparison. And yet, again, it is precisely for that reason 
that Samson's life reinforces for us the lesson of his birth, that it is the Lord who is in the business of doing for his people what they cannot do for themselves, that our salvation depends not on human effort, but on God who raises the dead, that it is not by might nor by power, but my, my spirit, says the Lord, and that it is not of him who wills or of him who runs, but of God who shows mercy and whose grace is greater than all of our sin put together and hung around the neck of the Lord Jesus on the cross, who hung there bleeding and dying in weakness, not in the tremendous strength of Samson's arms. In the weakness of the cross, that's how the Lord Jesus saved us. And yet he rose in power so much greater than anything Samson ever imagined. And continuing to see those comparisons and contrasts between Samson and the Lord Jesus, something I look forward to exploring together in the coming weeks. But for now, let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for uh, this um, origin story of Samson, for the promise of his birth, so unlooked for, so unexpected, unasked for, when your, your people didn't even know how to pray for the salvation they so desperately needed. But thank you that you sent to them a Savior, a Savior who in so many ways turned out to be so disappointing because of his rebellion against you. Lord, we thank you for the much better Savior that you've given us in the Lord Jesus Christ. And we ask that you would please, uh, through studying the life of Samson, strengthen our faith in him, in in the Lord Jesus, and um, teach us, Lord, to be strong in you and in the power of your might, walking by faith um, in our great and strong Savior, you have raised up for our deliverance. And we pray all these things in his name, in the name of Jesus. Amen.